Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Everyone has a story. In fact, most of the best stories illustrate how God can make a difference and how God is in control. Today we're joined by Linda Gerritsen. She's going to share her story of God's faithfulness. Not only did her faith not fail, but it grew stronger through trial after trial, even when an accident completely altered her life. She is proof that there is always hope in God. Today in Connections, she'll talk about that accident and how it completely altered her life. She'll also share how her faith is stronger. That's all today on Connections. You have an amazing story. I want to start from the beginning, though. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your childhood. Um, well, I was born in Fort Churchill in the Army Hospital when they had one there. Um, I grew up till I was about seven in a house my dad built in Churchill. We were one of the first families to have running water, which was kind of cool, because all my life, I just thought everybody had running water. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, because we had it. My dad is First Nations, or was First Nations, and my mom was white. Uh, her background is Scottish and Scandinavian. Um, my mom loved the Lord, and my dad became a Christian as a result of a Northern Canada Evangelical Mission. And um, yeah, but there was a lot of conflict in our home, not at the beginning, but we moved to Thompson when I was seven. And so my grandparents and cousins were all in Churchill, so that was difficult. But I grew up going to Sunday school and church. And when I was seven, uh, when we came to Thompson, uh, we went to the Thompson Bible Chapel, which was also was under continental mission, which a lot of Steinbeck Bible College kids go to Mid- Camp Midway in the summer to help out. And so we went also to Midway Bible Camp, but it wasn't in the same spot it is now. So you grew up uh, surrounded by faith for the most part, it sounds like, then? Abs- absolutely, because we had a lot of these missionaries in our home when they would be like Thompson kind of is a hub for going to the other communities. My dad was a pilot uh, when I was a toddler. My mom was a saver. My dad was a spender. <laughs> also, my dad was 18, a uh, white missionary pilot. My dad told him he wanted to be a pilot. And that man said to my dad, oh, no, that's not for you. But my dad was determined And after he married my mom, because my mom was a saver, uh, he built our house. Mom had saved $6,000, and that was in 1963 they built the house. And uh, not long after that, he bought, he he went to St. Andrews for his pilot's license, and then he uh, bought a plane. The first plane he bought was a, uh, not a Cessna, a Stinson. It was called a Stinson. And uh, and I still remember the call letters, C-F-E-Y-D. <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. <laughs> um, but yes, we were surrounded by um, missionaries, and uh, even in Churchill, of course. And, and so um, when I was seven, um, we had come home from church, and there was uh, must have been a sermon about heaven and hell or something, because my brother, who's 13 months younger than I, we both decided that we would ask Jesus into our heart. And so we got down beside our bunk beds with our mom 
and and we did that and i was always assured that that was what we we did and my younger brother would always ask my mom are you sure that jesus is in my heart and but um but i was always confident and then uh, when i was 13 at bible camp at midway uh, one of the missionary people who had actually dedicated me as a baby uh, asked me if i would be baptized and and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the next ne next logical step. Because <clears throat> I, I believe that when you're baptized, you're um, demonstrating to those around you that you want to follow Christ with your life. And my heart's desire was to uh, follow him and to honor him with my life. And then we moved from Thompson to South Indian Lake. Uh, I think I was around 13. Oh, just after um, I was baptized. Well, somewhere in that summer we moved. And um, we um, there, there was no church. Well, there was a United Church and a Catholic Church. And those people, I think the United Church had a minister in town, but the Catholic Church uh, would come in once in a while. So soon after, a missionary came to town from... Baptist International Missions, Inc. from the States. But, but she had lived in Thompson, uh, teaching the pastor's family there about, or they, they were homeschooled. But yeah, in South Indian Lake, my dad got away from going to church, and things changed in our home. At this point, too, this is when your parents arranged to um, send you to a boarding school. Is that correct? Yes. Um, but I was, I spent grades eight, nine, and 10 in South Indian Lake. And South Indian Lake's a Creek community. And my background is Denny, which is from the community of Tadouli Lake. And so, um, yeah, oh, when I was uh, 16, um, well, when I was 15, we, we were supposed to go somewhere. But I didn't want to go, and a lot of the other kids didn't want to go, so they did create a grade 10 for us in, in South Indian. So then in grade 11, I still didn't want to go, but they said, no, you have to go. So um, my parents arranged to take me to Karenport High School. And I was like a fish out of water because I was living in a community where you wear jeans and runners or winter boots and, and just you're, you're not dressed in dresses every day. And keep in mind, we didn't have a church, um, you know, we, we went to the school for Sunday school, but from that, from that missionary, but, um, well, uh, going to Karenport probably was the best thing for me, but at the time, believe me, I was very, very sad because number one, it was total culture shock. The roommate they gave me, um, had wall to wall under our bunk beds, dress shoes, like high heel shoes. And I had never worn them and still have never worn them to this day. <laughs> and bright, bright pink lipstick. And she was an American. Her dad was a pastor. And I was not an American. And I was a Canadian and, you know, out of the bush. And it was two totally opposite people. And, uh, you know, we got along. But my first three months there were trying to figure out how things worked. You know, my mom... I, I won't say she babied me, but 
Like she always did my hair and did my laundry. And even though she worked, um, she worked most of our lives. So it just became um, something I had to learn to get used to. And nobody really told me how things worked. I just kind of followed people I, I knew in my class to where I was supposed to go. And, and then it, you know, I finally started making friends and because I was extremely shy, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, and so life at Karenport turned into be something very good for me. When I was uh, finished high school, I wanted to go to Bible school. So I did one year and then my mom said, well, I think you need to start nursing because I had planned um, a nursing career. So instead of going back for my second year of, of Bible school, I um, started, it was under the uh, Kuwaitan Community College, but they had it in Thompson at the Thompson General Hospital. And I loved it. Um, we, we had such good experiences there. And uh, my favorite ward was pediatrics. Ah. And it filled my heart. Um, you know, I had this this plan, and you know the God's word tells us, um, man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And I had everything figured out. Um, I would finish my nursing, and then I would go work in a First Nations community. A lot of those children I saw, especially, you know, living in South Indian, were neglected, were not, um, I mean, they were starved for love, let's put it that way, to to wrap your arms around them and hug them. And um, some had good homes, others not so good. And uh, so my passion was to, uh, I because we grew up around a lot of missionaries, I did not like the idea of raising support. So I thought, if I'm a nurse and I work in the communities on my off time, I can you know, be with the children and bake cookies and instill value in them. Let them know that God, what's happening in, in even just lately in Sioux Valley with the uh, four suicides. These young people do not know that they're valued, that they have something in them that, that God wants to use their lives. And, and they probably get so distraught that they think that they're not worth anything and that it's better if they're not here. And then I just think that that's a shame and that they're, they're, we're losing out because of the, the deaths of these children. And they really need to know they're loved and that, that God's got them here for a purpose. Now, Linda, your plans to go into nursing didn't go exactly as planned because somewhere in between there, you were involved in a life-altering plane crash. I had, when I was in nursing, I had um, just finished some exams and it was just at the time of youthquake, which was the last weekend in February. And I um, had asked a friend of mine who was a pilot who had his own plane. I said, James, let's fly. Let's go to Karenport and have go for youthquake. And he hummed and hawed and thought about it. And he said, okay, we'll, we'll do that. And so I paid part of the gas and he paid part of the gas. It was his plane. And we flew off to Karenport. Only thing is, um, like you have to know my dad is Denny, which creates a bit of a stubborn person. And, and my mom with the Scottish is also a bit of a stubborn person. <laughs> and so I was quite a stubborn girl at that age. 
And my mom did not want me to fly. She did not say no, but she said, you know, I'd really like it if you'd go by bus or some other way. And of course I grew up flying and flying made sense. So I said, you know, mom, I'm 19, I'm an adult. I can make my own decision. So I flew off to, to Karenport for the weekend and the, it was a blast. The theme was the race of life. And it asked every young person, where are you headed? And um, well, of course I had this plan, right? And then one of the guest speakers, and this for me is one of the most exciting points of this story. One of the guest speakers was a double amputee. His name was Jim Martinson. He's from Puyallup, Washington. And he had been in the Vietnam War and he'd lost his legs from a bouncing Betty mine. And there he was standing on two artificial legs, both both lost above the knee, sharing how he'd tried everything in his life. He was at the end, alcohol, he was at the end of his rope. And a friend came to him and said, why don't you give Jesus a chance? And it changed his life. And so here he was sharing his story. And I had the opportunity three times over the weekend to go to him. How do your legs work? How do your socks stay up? His knees were hydraulic. It was just fascinating to me. And then on the way home, James and I <clears throat> had left Moose Jaw where the plane was landed uh, or parked. And we flew into Swan River and refueled. Linda, what happened from there? Oh, well, well, when we got in the air, James said to me, Linda, which way should we go? And I says, well, what's faster? We had flight plans, Swan River, the Paw, the Paw Thompson. And when we got in the air, I said, what's faster? He says, cross country. I says, let's go cross country. But remember, I'm not the pilot. I'm a girl who wants to get home and girls can be impatient. And um, anyway, we flew and, and we flew over Lake Winnipegosis, which had at that moment a whiteout. And when we were in the whiteout, James is looking out the window and I'm looking at the artificial horizon. And so I told James, um, I yelled at him twice, watch your instruments. And he pulled, pulled, um, the controls back and we cross, crashed nose and left side and we crashed in a, a Piper Cherokee 140 and there's only one door in that plane it was on the passenger side and James my legs were stuck in the pipes they used to have pedals there and he still had his pedals that's for you know going left or right with the airplane and um, so he said Linda we have to get in the back seat and prepare for the night. We did not have an ELT on board. We crashed March 3rd. ELTs became mandatory on April 1st that year. Had we had one, when search and rescue flew over at 11 o'clock that night, they would have found us and came to help. But we didn't. So James uh, picked up my legs and helped me to the back seat. And he came back beside me and got a a sleeping bag and covered us up and um, we just kind of prepared for a long winter's night and uh, it was minus 21 that night and um, James had asked me for my gauntlets I had um, some leather gloves that went up to almost my elbow and I remember feeling his hands and it's like fear gripped my heart because I all of a sudden realized that he's dangerously cold. 
And so, um, you know, I kept covering his head and he kept uncovering his head. And, and um, you know, we prayed about what happened. He kept apologizing. And about um, maybe around midnight, you know, he was singing, kind of hallucinating. Um, but James was, he loved the Lord. He was a uh, really amazing young man. Um, he was 23. And um, about maybe 4, 4.30 in the morning, I checked for a pulse, and he was gone. And I turned to my left because I did not want to look at him passed away. I wanted to, to remember James as I knew him. And um, about 8 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, beautiful blue sky, still cold. And I prayed that God would send someone to rescue me or let me die. Because I didn't want to just sit there and sit there and sit there. And about 11.30, oh, I prayed that God would send somebody before noon. <laughs> and about 11.30, I heard a plane. And it circled three times and landed. And the first person to the plane was James's brother-in-law, Lauren Brown. Wow. And he said, is he unconscious? And I said, no, he's dead. And Lauren stepped back, and the rest of the men, there were four of them. It's just like opening a tin can. They lifted the roof backwards and lifted me out and put me in the Cessna. Um, and I think it was a Cessna 185 that these four men had borrowed, dug out of the snowbank, checked over, were told by search and rescue not to come and look for us. And they had come and they'd found us. And they picked me up and flew me to the PAW hospital. And that night, uh, my heart stopped, but they got it going again. And then they took me down to the Health Science Center in Winnipeg, where I spent the next six, six or so months. During those um, months in hospital, what was going through your mind and what was your faith like? Or did it, did it change from moment to moment and day to day? You know, no. Um, I was so grateful that my faith was grounded. I was, um, you know, even in the plane, I was not afraid. I expected my dad to find me. And, uh, well, he was actually looking, but he was already to Swan River when someone told him that one's dead and one's alive. And they took the survivor to the paw. And so he flew from Swan River and he said he was praying that it would be me, even though it was selfish. So he did get to the um, emergency room in the pot to see me. He told me not to talk so much because I was talking a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really the first time my dad said, I love you to me. Um, my dad had, um, there's a lot of history there that I won't get into, but it, it was quite amazing for him to do that. And uh, so, yeah, no, in the hospital, I don't remember a lot of the beginning because I was in intensive care. Like, uh, so we crashed March 3rd, March 4th, they found me, March 5th, they took me to the health sciences. And March 12th was my mom's birthday. And I was in intensive care. And I'd asked the nurses for some colored paper and some white paper. And I had cut out the word mom 
but on two pages, so that two papers, so that when I cut it out once, I had mom that I wanted to glue to the top, and then the inside I wanted to put, wow, it's your birthday, or something like that. But I fell asleep before I could finish it. And when I woke up, somebody had glued mom and mom. So I was a little mm, <laughs> not happy that somebody glued my card instead of me. But um, after, on the 13th, they had to take my right eye because my right eye had been damaged in the accident and could no longer see. And the way they explained it was if they didn't take it, um, then my left eye could get infected and then I would be blind. And I thought, well, I don't like that idea too much. So um, I gave them consent to take my right eye. And it wasn't uh, the next three and a half weeks. I, I still, I felt good. I was, they had put um, like my left leg had pins in it from all the breaks. My right leg had a cast on it because of um, my right ankle was in little itty bitty pieces. And um, so it was a Monday, they decided they would change the cast and see how things were looking. And before they changed the cast, they had decided they would amputate on Friday. And when they changed the cast, the oxygen hit the tissue. And by Tuesday, when they saw it on, on Monday, they decided they better amputate Wednesday. And when the oxygen hit the tissue, by early Tuesday morning, um, I had a high fever and gangrene was doing its thing. So I had no knowledge that I was going in for surgery. And when I woke up, both of my legs were quite short and I was pretty, pretty irritated because one of the things they drilled into you in nursing was make sure your patient knows before it happens, you know, what, yeah. what it's going to be like when they wake up. So they didn't have an opportunity to do that. And I understand that now, but it's like, I only had like four inches below each knee. And, and I thought, well, how's this going to work? Anyway, long story short, um, I had to go home to the Thompson general on April 16th because my left femur had to heal and that took a few months and they had put a, a rod and 16 screws through my bone to hold that bone together. So I was in the, and never, never did I complain. Never, never did I say, why me? And, and I think part of that had to do with meeting Jim Martinson because I really understood that God loved me so much that he let me meet him before it had happened to me. And I thought that was pretty amazing that, that God could do that or would do that. Because I, I'm convinced that he is uh, interested in the little things in our lives, not just big things. And so um, I, I went through it. People would come to the hospital and they would say, you know, they tell my mom, we came there to cheer Linda up, but she cheered us up. And so it, it, it was, I mean, it was an interesting time because it's something that uh, not everybody gets to go through, but it was a real, um, uh, like, because of my foundation, it was just, you know, I, I totally trusted God. I knew that I could. 
and I didn't have to worry. And that for me was pretty amazing. One of the biggest changes in my life came when I realized um, there in the hospital that um, my faith before this moment had been inherited. I grew up, even though I loved the Lord and asked him into my heart, I knew that I did all the things I did because my faith was inherited. I didn't really have to trust God because my parents provided everything. I had no needs. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the hospital, I'm losing my legs, and my faith became experienced because God really, he came down, he, he showed me how life could be as an amputee with Jim Martinson. He, he was there with me and comforted me. And um, for me, that was pretty, pretty amazing because it changed my heart. Um, you know, I never really was angry about this whole thing. Um, later on in life, uh, before now, I, uh, I had moments where I was upset my parents didn't sue because financially uh, life as an amputee is a bit difficult. And my finances, you know, I never had insurance. James didn't have insurance on his seats. Like my dad, when he'd fly, he would have insurance on his seats. So if something happened, that person was covered. Well, I didn't have that. Um, but as for life now, I'm a pastor's wife. Uh, wasn't the plan. Uh, nobody gave me any lessons on how to be a pastor's wife. My husband went to seminary for four years at Providence, and he's an amazing pastor and uh, and an amazing husband. Um, if you had time, I could tell you all about how we met in cyberspace and and him coming to Canada and and then I went to live in the Netherlands for 12 years after we were married. And he, he had initially said uh, three to four years. It just <laughs> out to So <clears throat> after the wedding, he said four to five years. And I'm going like, hey, you can't change that. But it did stretch out to 12 years. And I learned the Dutch language. And I taught Bible studies in, in Dutch. I taught at a, at a college, um, medical English, which I was so thrilled to do to the doctor's assistants and, and uh, um, pharmacy assistants. And it was just a highlight of my life. Um, one of the hard things though was 500 days after we were married, um, they told us we couldn't have children by ourselves. So I did the whole, not IVF, but it's something called IVM. And, uh, and, and then after a month she said I had to stop. So. It was, it was extremely difficult to, because I thought, you know, with the heart that I had for children and, you know, wanting to be a mom and, and having gone through all the difficult things with my accident. And then there was something else I didn't tell you about because um, my dad left my mom for that Baptist missionary, which was like a bomb exploding in my life. And that was extremely difficult. But um, pastoring... Like my husband is is wonderful. Uh, sometimes you have opposition from council members because they think it should be their way and not his way. Um, so we have some difficulties, but for the most part, God has been really good and cared for us. Um, my legs have been good. Uh, 
they had a fundraiser for me to to buy a piece of exercise equipment called the new step to help me keep in shape and um like everything's not roses my mom passed away in may and i have found that the most difficult difficult time and i know that god's timing is right and um but it has been extremely uh emotional for me i had begged her for years to sell her house in thompson she'd had it for 51 years and there's a lot of work to do on it my middle brother is trying to you know paint it and make it look better but there are problems uh, that are caused by a manitoba hydro pole and we're just i keep going around in circles with people on the phone and it's exhausting and i've even spent time crying and being angry with my mom for leaving this for me because number one i'm a girl number two i have a disability and and i don't i'm 700 kilometers away hmm. from that house so um you know i really trust god that it'll get finished and get on the market and and get sold and then i have to deal with all that but because i'm mom's executor um but somewhere in there i didn't tell you that i before I married Martin, I went to university and I, I did it starting the Bachelor of Science program. And because I was in, insisting on going back into nursing and I did a practicum in South Indian Lake Nursing Station, but I couldn't physically handle it. So by two in the afternoon, I was napping in one of the patient rooms. And, and so I decided when I went back to Winnipeg that I would um, switch to a, a Bachelor of Arts in major in psychology and but at the end of the day you have a piece of paper that says you know how to study but it doesn't give you uh, professional something that you actually can work you know as a specialty job so then i ended up doing a bachelor of social work and when we came back to canada i expected to have a job because first i'm a first nations person second uh, I'm a woman, and third, uh, I have a disability. So the the fourth is is um, minority, I guess people. Um, so there are f three out of the four of their um, equity or whatever that program is called. I fit, um, but the first five months I never got a job, and I would say on my letter that I was a person with a disability. So I finally took that off and started getting job interviews. But you know what? The moment they saw me, they knew I was a person with a disability. So I couldn't <laughs> hide that. And um, I ended up with two jobs uh, over the time I was in Winnipeg. One was a social work position, which I absolutely loved. But it was short term. And the person who was supposed to retire and then I would get that job ended up asking the board if he could stay. And so, so they couldn't afford two of us, so I had to go. Uh, I was just wondering, yeah. what's been the biggest lessons you've learned about faith through overcoming so much adversity in your life? The biggest lessons? Yeah. Well, I would just say that, um, you, like, trusting God, uh, period. You don't have to, like a lot of people, even with this COVID stuff, they're, they're going around being fearful. 
And you know what? I'm not fearful because I know that God knows. I know he knows the big picture and I don't have to worry. And I also know that he has each person on earth's time is appointed. He knows that he knows the hairs on our head. And you know, I wash my hair and I lose hair and I'm thinking, boy, he's got a lot to keep track of. And if he knows the hairs on my head, then he knows everything. So I don't have to worry. And that's for me, um, like the biggest thing. Sure, I still cry and cry about the loss of my mom. And I've told my husband, you know what, I need a dog because I don't have kids. And he doesn't want me to have a dog because he, I already shed enough hair because I got long hair and I'm, he's constantly picking up hair. And well, <clears throat> that, that is a thing between him and I that, <laughs> that kind of irritates him. And so if we had a dog, then he's worried that there's going to be more hair to pick up. And I told him, I just need something to hug. <laughs> oh, when my friend said, said, hug your husband. I said, no, I want a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's where it's at at the moment. Um, but like, do you have any harder questions? (laughs) Well, what about for people that are facing their own adversity and maybe feel like giving up? What do you say to encourage them? What do I say to encourage them? You know what? I have a lot of friends like that in the, in the, in this, in this area. And what I say is come over and I'll pray with you. So I, I read something from God's word and um, and I pray with them because you know what? Uh, we can't do this on our own and we do need connections. And and sure, talking to God is one thing, but he he's asked us to bear one another's burdens. And you know what? When I was in the hospital, I had in the first six weeks, I had 180 cards People who I did not know sent me cards and I knew that these people were praying for me and, and I didn't have to carry that burden. It wasn't mine to carry. And you know, when people are fearful, that's, that's not something that they need. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I've gone through so much and I understand and, and, and the Lord has been really good even though things happen that are not nice, uh, like it's, it's just one of like the way I've coped is just say, look, it's not my problem. It's God's. And, um, you know what, one of the, the verses that I remembered in the accident and that I remembered throughout my time in the hospital was from, uh, Isaiah 41, 10. And, and it's in the KJV because that's what I've used since I was young. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help you. Yea, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. So if, if God's upholding me and he's strengthening me, then I should be able to get through anything he sends my way. God doesn't cause it to happen, but he allows things to happen to make us more like him. And that was what I wanted when I was young. I wanted to honor him with my life. Now that doesn't mean I'm perfect. And that doesn't, you ask my husband. Um, 
that I don't have bad days or sad days. Sure, everybody does. But the core of me rests on uh, knowing that, that God loves me, that he sent his son to die for me, that I can trust him with whatever comes my, my way. And, uh, and, and if I can do it, anybody else can do it. I mean, I just lost a friend on September 22nd and another one about 10 days before that, um, both from cancer, not from COVID. And the, the second one was the hardest one for me because I knew her, she was a nurse. I'd known her since the 80s from Briarcrest. And I mean, it was just as painful as losing my mom. And uh, yeah, it, it's still hard. I mean, it's just so new and fresh, but I know that God will bring me through this too. And, um, and that I can trust him. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Linda. Remember, don't forget to subscribe to Connections with Mike, Tom and Colleen Hood. We'll talk to you again on Connections.